patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski, and today we will be discussing something that I think is incredibly relevant to today's politics, but also a little bit about the military as well. As many of you know, uh, obviously George Washington was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, and so he also represents a lot of different lessons about civil-military relations, which essentially is the relations between the civilian side of politics, you know, the lawmakers, the strategists, the advisors, uh, and, of course, the military. And this episode is particularly important because um, recently, in the last few days, uh, the Biden administration has just uh, had their first Secretary of Defense, General Lloyd Austin, who was confirmed uh, by the well, not confirmed by the House, but uh, the House granted a waiver for General Austin uh, on Thursday or this past week, and the very next day was confirmed by the Senate by a very, very wide margin. And the real question now is, well, um, with General Austin's waiver being passed, what does this mean for U.S. civil-military relations? And of course, this requires a little bit of background uh, so that we're all up to speed on the issues at hand. Essentially, the waiver comes from a federal law that requires that military officials have to be within civilian life for at least seven years after retirement. It was imposed so that uh, there will be some kind of experience and understanding of the civilian side of of things for military officers. Uh, Part of it really, I think, stems all the way back to the early days of of the American Revolution, and even up until really the founding of the nation. President Washington obviously was virtually unanimously picked to be the next leader, but there were obviously some who were concerned that because he was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, that he would have particular interests for the military. This obviously sparked a a big debate, um, not as huge as the other ones that we normally hear about the Washington administration, uh, but it certainly raised a lot of questions about who has authority over the military. And it was inscribed very well in the Constitution, putting together the fact that Congress, as part of Article 1, has that power to... Um, to pass legislation on foreign policy. Congress is the only one that can can declare war, Uh, but the president is also the commander-in-chief. So the idea that the military will be in a way subordinate to the civilian uh, population um, shows that, or the civilian leaders, uh, show that uh, there's going to be a constant reorganization and reprioritization of the, of civil-military relations, depending on the circumstances. 
as times go through, there's going to be times that are going to require perhaps more military action than other times. So who makes those decisions, right? Now back onto the issue of the waiver. General George Marshall was nominated to be Secretary of Defense. And uh, this was in 1950. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of questions about his ability to retain civil-military relations, allowing the civilian leadership to conduct policy and to provide strategy, while the military was able to provide, obviously, the operations and the resources and, of course, military strategy to help inform policymakers. This is really the dynamic we're discussing here. And there was a huge, huge controversy on what I think many of you are familiar with, which is the dismissal of... General Douglas MacArthur. Now, MacArthur himself was a very successful general, leading all these efforts uh, during the Second World War. But there were uh, he made some contradicting remarks about the Truman administration. And he was almost, at least to Truman's advisors and to President Truman, was almost dictating policy because he was getting all this attention, he was getting all this authority to be able to uh, conduct um, and conduct military actions the way he believed were best in accordance with his own military strategy. And there were a number of people, especially those who were close, including uh, then Secretary of State Dean Acheson, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and those, uh, those close figures met with President Truman, and they decided to dismiss General MacArthur. And that really sparked a lot of further debate about civil-military relations. And that certainly came in when General Marshall was being considered to be Secretary of Defense. Defense Department was reorganized. It used to be called Department of War. I guess people realize that Department of War doesn't sound very good and it had really bad connotations. But then, nonetheless, they decided to change the name and restructure it and try to uh, be more aligned with uh, some of those uh, ideas and some of those policies uh, that could make the military more efficient, but also allow civilian control of uh, the U.S. military. And so the waiver was granted uh, with uh, much debate around General Marshall and his ability to lead the Defense Department. Uh, finally, the waiver was granted to uh, General Marshall in 1950. And since then, there have only been two cases where a military general was granted this waiver of the, you know, for the seven years of, of seven years of civilian life before being eligible to become Secretary of Defense. The one that was most recent prior to 2021 is, of course, General Jim Mattis. Uh, and it was a, a Marine general. And the people were at that time, I think, really loved Mattis. And I think a lot of people still do. And I think it's the same with uh, General Austin uh, and with General George Marshall. I don't think anyone is disputing the military capabilities and the amazing career that these uh, these men have created in their lives for this nation. But the question is, can they maintain that commitment of civil military relations? As I don't think it has much to do with intention. I don't think anyone intends to try to disrupt or destroy those relations. It's more along lines of the biases 
and the tendencies for people to do certain things. And this kind of leads me now to really some of the, the arguments that I like to make here to say that despite the amazing talents, amazing accomplishments of General Marshall, General Mattis, and General Austin, I believe that the Secretary of Defense has to remain a civilian position. And here are my reasons here. And I'd like to get your thoughts after I share my arguments and a couple of the counter-arguments. I'd like to hear from the audience. Now, for me, the first argument is that the Secretary of Defense position is political. There's no doubt that the president is going to want to have his agenda pass as much as possible. And therefore, he's going to need not only advice you know, for more information, but he also is going to want people who are close to him, um, who may have differences. It's certainly not the case that everyone has to be a yes man. But he definitely wants someone who is focused on delivering the priorities of the administration. And that's not to put the military aside or anything. It's just that there are going to be some some particular changes that might run contrary to what the military strategy is saying. The military um, is aimed at being able to carry out the, those policies, but also to have that military strategy to uh, maximize efficiency, to minimize casualties, and all the rest. So those that kind of clash is really the, a, a bit of the problem here. And part of being a, a, in a political position, like Secretary of Defense, requires political skills. It requires connections, requires understanding the political structure and the inner workings between members of Congress and the president, or even between staffers. These are the kinds of things that one needs to have experience with to understand how the policymaking process works. In fact, within the Department of Defense is something called the Office of the Secretary of Defense, also known as OSD. OSD really is at the core of the policymaking process in the Department of Defense. And there's going to be a number of individuals who are going to be concerned that the Secretary of Defense is not going to be listening to them as much or perhaps at all. And so these are some of the concerns regarding the fact that the Secretary of Defense really is a political position, that they have to be confirmed by the Senate, and the Secretary of Defense serves at the President's pleasure. The second argument is that there is concern about setting military branch favoritism. Now, I mentioned before that uh, the, these three generals don't didn't all come from uh, all, all the same branch, but there are concerns that uh, the Secretary of Defense might favor one branch over another or pick people who are from the same branch. Then um, that certainly can create a lot of problems when it comes to building military readiness. Especially, it goes back to that first point about uh, politics here. You know, if someone is coming from a particular branch and they try to lobby on uh, more resources or uh, particular staff members to to help, there's going to be other branches who are going to say, "Well, what about us? What if what happens if the Secretary of Defense favors one branch over the others? Maybe not on purpose. It might just be a more of a natural thing. We, we, we as people, right? We tend to be." part of groups and part of a particular group and identity. And if someone's come from the Navy, they have a Navy identity. Um, someone's as a Marine or if, uh, someone is from the army uh, or from uh, the 
uh, the the uh, the other branches out there. I mean, Space Force obviously has been recently added. So you add add some of these up, and there is going to be there's going to be a lot of controversy, and uh, no doubt that favoritism is not what we want. We want the whole entire military to be ready, ready for any circumstance, for any kind of threats. And number three is that military expertise should not replace national security expertise. I, I get this a lot because um, a lot of people have been saying that it's not just the, the political position. It's the fact that there's people who understand national security goes far beyond just managing the military. I mean, this is an abandonment position. This is a leadership position. And part of the leadership aspect is to be able to uh, not only stand up for the military and to be uh, that vocal uh, vocal leader, but it's also to be able to take into consideration the other players that are involved in national security policymaking. That includes the intelligence agencies, some of whom are independent, others are part of other uh, other branches or departments. And, and because as part of the intelligence community, you have to work with many other uh, many other partners and other leaders who have different ideas, who are going to collect intelligence very differently. There's also the the difference of culture. The, the culture of the intelligence community or of, the say, the DIA is going to be very different from the, uh, the, the culture within the army. You know, so there's, there's also that to consider as well. We can't, we need military expertise. I mean, that should come from the, uh, the military side, uh, but not at the the very, very top of the echelon in terms of the Secretary of Defense. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also have a very important role in advising the Secretary of Defense on military strategy. Now, number four is that the appointment of military officers obviously raises questions about the ability for these military members to maintain civil military relations. This kind of, again, kind of wraps through some of those earlier points I just mentioned. Uh, to maintain civil military relations, what is that balance? I think this is the real purpose of this argument here, which is does the member, uh, does the Secretary of Defense understand what kind of balance there has to be between civil uh, the civilian side policy making and military strategy and military resources? And then number five, and my last one is that it could set a potentially harm precedent of implying that a four star general is kind of a bit of a cap or uh, a stepping stone to become Secretary of Defense. We certainly don't want to show that one has to go through the military and be eligible for Secretary of Defense because these these are two different paths, right, with regards to the civilian side and the military side. That's not to say that one side can't go in the other, but there has to be maybe a bit of a, of a gap, a bit of a gap allowing some time for for people on both sides, for both people on both branches, to to some extent, uh, to familiarize them, themselves with the other side, understanding how they're formed, and and what they do differently, and while those different the differences do not extend to things like, of course, serving the country. However, these minute differences are going to make a, a huge impact on how policy making is done. And one of the worst things I think uh, any government can do is to have mixed messaging. You just can't have you can't have military officers saying one thing, and the secretary of defense saying another. And the the messaging has to be as as coherent as possible. 
Now, there have been counter-arguments. Um, I think General Austin has, um, in a way, a very good point about saying that he wants to strengthen the uh, OSD policymaking process. He wants to have one of the um, more senior DOD level people called the Undersecretary uh, for Policy. And he wants to include whoever that person is in those senior level meetings. I appreciate those commitments. I think everyone does. The problem, I think, for me is that part of the commitment also requires the experience. People might really want to see that General Austin has had these abilities. And, And now that he's been confirmed, I think it's worth all of us to give him an opportunity but I do think that when it comes to this waiver that was just granted, we have to really rethink that. I think there has to be legislation. There has to be some kind of leadership showing that it's not about a critique of General Austin or General Mattis or General Marshall or the military. It's about preserving this balance, this really, really, really delicate balance that could make a real big difference in how the U.S. government functions and how it responds to further threats as they come about in the coming years. It's still an area of debate. I mentioned that I wanted to keep this discussion open, but I thought I would bring up this topic today because I think it's going to be a very symbolic but also operational issue that could have ramifications. Uh, We don't want any of these problems to obviously to erupt, uh, but I hope that this episode has helped you kind of think about some of those issues and why people were a bit concerned about General Austin's appointment or confirmation to the Secretary of Defense position. But I don't think it should just be about this particular confirmation. Some people, I think, are going to look back at the confirmation of General Mattis or uh, General Marshall. If there are extraordinary circumstances that require that we need a waiver, I think that should be considered. It's not to completely rule out, but what are those extraordinary circumstances? Perhaps that might be the source of debate here. But we will revisit this issue at another time. And that'll wrap up our episode today. I want to thank you all for listening. Please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. I really appreciate all of your support. We wish Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin the very best and hope that he delivers for the Department of Defense, the Biden administration, and for the nation as a whole. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week, and I'll see you next time.